Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition. I'm Josh of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about us by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. Syria, in a word, is a disaster. And I mean that in a very literal sense and in all seriousness. Hundreds of thousands of people have died, millions more have been displaced, and entire cities have been destroyed. Syria is without question one of the greatest global challenges of our day. But like all global challenges, there are no easy solutions. The situation is also really hard to understand, not only for students, but even for those of us who read the news every day and make a point of trying to keep up. And yet, it's one of those topics that's essential for all kids to learn and spend time thinking about. Because when you get right down to it, the war in Syria really will have consequences for all of us. As U.S. citizens, we need to be thinking about U.S. foreign policy in the region. And as global citizens, we need to be thinking about how to solve the humanitarian crisis this war has unleashed. It's our hope that this episode will give you the background info you need to help your students learn more about this conflict and its global ramifications. Welcome to Episode 4. Syria Explained. All right, let's start by getting a general lay of the land so that we're all up to speed on where things stand in Syria before we dive into some of the deeper complexities. Sure. So in Syria, you have what we would call in many ways kind of a herding stalemate of sorts where you have the regime and Bashar al-Assad and the Iranians and the Russians um, in control of most of the country, the major population centers from Damascus to Homs to Hama to Dakia and elsewhere. Um, and then you kind of have the Kurds controlling a lot of the northeastern part of the country, some of the rebel groups in the north and the south, and then ISIS rapidly diminishing in kind of the eastern part. So in that sense, there have been small changes on the ground, mostly ISIS losing control of some of its territory around Raqqa. But really where we are now is kind of somewhat the negotiation phase. This is Peter Krauss, an assistant professor of political science at Boston College and an expert on Middle East politics and what we call non-state violence. He's conducted research throughout much of the Middle East and North Africa, and he's been following Syrian politics since before the war. I also want to add that Professor Krauss used to be a high school world history teacher himself, and he has some thoughts on how you can teach about Syria in your own classrooms. We'll get to that in a little bit, but for now, back to those negotiations. What's really fascinating is you have these two ongoing negotiation uh, approaches. One is the Geneva negotiations. That's sponsored by the UN. They've met now six or seven times to really no avail. But nonetheless, they have a combination of members of the Syrian government meeting with some of the opposition forces. The Russians are simultaneously trying to do their own set of negotiations. Uh, And in fact, Vladimir Putin invited the members of the opposition and the government to come 10 days before the next Geneva talks to kind of sponsor their own negotiations, which perhaps not surprisingly would much more involved Bashar al-Assad staying in power going forward, whereas in the UN talks, a lot of the rebel groups still hold on to the idea of, we need to talk about political transition. So that's where things in Syria stand now. But how did we get here? Let's back up just for a second so that we have a better sense of what Syria looked like before the war. So Bashar al-Assad is the president of Syria. 
Um, he took power in 2000 after uh, his father passed away, Hafez al-Assad. His father had set up Syria um, to be kind of how it is today from the early 1970s when he took power in a coup. And Bashar is kind of leading the family dynasty now for about its fourth or fifth decade. Got it. So Bashar al-Assad is the president of Syria, as was his dad before him. But that begs the question, why a civil war now if the same family's been in power for decades? What changed? What's fascinating about the uprising in Syria is that it did not start as a civil war. Even though we have fighting today and have now for five or six years, it started in many ways as a nonviolent uprising, inspired in part by some of the other uprisings in the Arab world, like in Tunisia, like in Egypt. Just FYI, those uprisings he's talking about are the ones that happened around 2011 throughout much of the Middle East. The ones we often refer to collectively as the Arab Spring. What was fascinating about that is that Syria itself was run in many ways like a police state. And so many Middle East scholars, myself included, did not think that the people would be able to come out in these numbers against their regime, but they were incredibly brave to do so. In many ways, they shattered the wall of fear that the Assad regime had built up over the decades. And so they came out in the tens and hundreds of thousands to protest, not actually initially to get rid of Assad, but to change political reforms, to have better economic opportunities, things of this nature. The problem was, number one, the Assad regime just kind of reshuffled their cabinet uh, Assad promised to make changes but didn't, instead kind of brutalized protesters. And the other thing that happened is that surrounding Middle Eastern states, from the Saudis to the Turks to others, didn't want Assad to be in power because they see him in many ways as an Iranian proxy. So they started to fund and provide arms to some of the uprisers and some of the rebel groups, and that in many ways helped spiral towards a civil war in Syria that started in earnest by the fall of 2011. Great. So fast forward back to our own time. Why has the U.S. taken so much interest in this particular civil war that's half a world away? The U.S. is interested in the civil war in Syria for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a humanitarian disaster, arguably perhaps the biggest one going on in the world today. Syria is a country of about 23 million people. There have been about 400,000 plus who have been killed in the course of the conflict. There's been about 6 million or so refugees as a result of the conflict, up to 9 million or so internally displaced persons. Those are people who fled or were forced out of their homes but don't cross an international border. Refugees cross an international border. All of that's to say is that the majority of the Syrian population is either a refugee, an internally displaced person, or now killed. And so I think either from just a policy perspective or just a humanitarian perspective, uh, it's tough to look away and not want to do something. So that certainly makes a difference. The humanitarian considerations of this conflict are staggering. But the U.S. has some old-fashioned geopolitical reasons for paying attention to Syria, too. I'll also say that the Middle East has always been an important strategic region for U.S. interests, whether it's the free flow of oil, whether it's allies in the region like Turkey and Israel, whether it's enemies in the region or rivals like Iran and Russia, all of those to varying degrees come to bear on what's going on in Syria. Now, by no means is Syria going to be a U.S. ally. By no means is Syria in any way a significant threat to the United States directly. But in terms of the regional politics, who's on top, who's on the bottom, who's rising, who's falling, that matters. The other reason I'll say that Syria has mattered a lot is ISIS and terrorism. So, you know, the capital of ISIS's quote-unquote caliphate was Raqqa in eastern Syria. And to the extent that you see ISIS as a threat to the U.S., not an existential one, but one that can lead to attacks, which I think has been proven, unfortunately, um, there's certainly a security issue. Beyond that, 
ISIS and Syria have had more foreign fighters than any conflict in history. And so the challenge is not just the fighting there now, but what happens to individuals from France, from Saudi, from the United States, who go and fight on the side of ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and then thereafter come home. Many of them hopefully would just be reintegrated to society or be disillusioned with ISIS, but a number of them can potentially carry out attacks or be sympathizers with ISIS. And so those are some of the major reasons that the U.S. remains focused and interested in what's going on in Syria, even if it's not a country that's next door, nor one that's particularly, say, oil-rich or a U.S. ally. Right. ISIS. Yeah, let's recap on them just for a minute, since they played a really big part in the war. So ISIS, even though they came on the scene in 2014, 2015 for many Americans and many around the world, they were around as an organization for many years before, just under different names. So they were originally part of Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda meaning the base in Arabic. They were one of Al-Qaeda's franchises in Iraq and then Syria. And then what happened is their leadership kind of got a little big for their britches, wanted more control, etc. And so they actually left Al-Qaeda and swore off from being loyal to them. And so they came onto the scene because they captured Mosul, which is the second largest city in Iraq and the northern part of the country. That was a surprise because they actually defeated or at least made flee uh, Iraqi military forces that outnumbered them more than five to ten to one. And they had been trained by the United States for quite a long time. And so the fact they took this major city along with millions of dollars in the banks inside of it and the control that comes with it was a big shock to the system. Um, they subsequently have, over the past year or so, lost much of their territory. They previously controlled an area the size of Indiana. Today it's much smaller. But nonetheless, even though they've been pushed out of Mosul in Iraq, They've been pushed very recently out of Raqqa in Syria, which is their kind of de facto capital. They still control some areas in eastern Syria and western Iraq, kind of in some of the Sunni Arab hinterlands. And they still have insurgent factions in many other parts of the Middle East and the world. So even though their state is kind of on the way out, them as an insurgent organization and a movement is not. So in other words, ISIS is gone and not gone, all at the same time. So where does that leave the United States? The U.S. is against ISIS and doesn't really like Assad, but saying that only gets us so far. To be overly simplistic about it, who should we be rooting for? Who are the good guys in this war? So, of course, the first thing you need to do is define what good and bad means. And I think for many of us, it would be things like, you know, bad would be killing civilians purposely. Um, bad would be committing, you know, genocide or war crimes or committing terrorist attacks, um, trying to grab territory or rule over people who don't want to be ruled, things of that nature. Good would be trying to have more of a pluralistic society, um, trying to compromise and work with others, you know, potentially if you're using violence, using it against uniform military, things of this nature. By those standards, to be totally honest, it's tough to find anyone who's fully pure in Syria. Uh, I think a lot of these polarized wars do that to the various sides, where on the one hand, absolutely the Assad regime is responsible for tens if not hundreds of thousands of his own people's deaths. At the same time, these rebel factions, whether they're called moderate or not by the U.S. government, uh, have also been responsible for quite a bit of brutality, as well as the killing of civilians in many cases. So the U.S. has certainly been on the lookout for what they call moderate forces. They certainly helped to brand the Syrian democratic forces, as well as some of the Kurdish groups, as being more moderate moderate in that sense. Um, and I think there's something to that in the sense that they've certainly shown more willingness to share power and to share governance with other organizations.
accusations. It's also fair to say, though, they're willing to do that because that would still be a step up for them. Whereas from the Assad regime's perspective, they ran the country before, so they're more reticent to share power. And certainly if they're not being pushed to do so because of losing on the ground, which they have not been, uh, they're less likely to make that happen. So in terms of who to root for, um, I guess I would simply say many people support the Kurds because they maybe empathize or sympathize with an ethnic group that doesn't have their own state, that for a long time has been discriminated against, not just in Syria, but in Turkey and some of the surrounding areas. Um, at the same time, you know, the Kurds in Syria don't necessarily always get along with the Kurds in other surrounding areas. They're also seen as a major destabilizing force by some of our strong allies in the region, to the extent Turkey's still a strong ally and they're majorly part of NATO, they are. Um, so even though there might be certain good, quote unquote, and bad guys or better and worse guys in the region, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that from the U.S. perspective of self-interest in foreign policy, that you should simply be backing the demands of these various groups. And that's one of the reasons that in Syria, we don't really have any great options. It's really about least bad options. No great options and least bad options. What a conundrum. How's the U.S. dealt with that? The Obama administration had a certain approach to Syria where, on the one hand, they said Assad must go and didn't leave a lot of leeway there, at least publicly, in terms of what the desired goal was, as well as the defeat of ISIS. In terms of what they actually did on the ground, especially during the latter year of Obama's time in office, uh, the U.S. put in an extensive force in terms of airstrikes against ISIS, partnering with the Kurds and some other local rebel factions on the ground, not so much to go after the Assad regime, although there was some of that, more to go after ISIS and take territory from them. And that was actually pretty successful, despite some of the media coverage about it, in many ways because it was left over from the triumph of ISIS of taking Mosul and Raqqa and these other places. The Trump administration, to be honest, has actually pretty much followed that exact blueprint regarding ISIS in the sense that it's still U.S. airstrikes, it's still partnering with the Kurds and these local rebel forces and the Iraqi government to take out land from ISIS. I guess I'd say the main difference is there's been a slight increase in the number of U.S. troops there, but still not a significant change. We don't have tens of thousands of forces or close to it in Iraq uh, and Syria today. The main difference potentially under the Trump administration is that they've at least publicly, initially, seemingly been more open to Assad staying in power in Syria. They seem to kind of say, whether because it's favorability to Russia or otherwise, you know, it's kind of a fool's errand to say we're going to overthrow Assad with the forces we have in there. That being said, when this chemical weapons attack happened and whatever else, the Trump regime came out and said, now Assad must go and we don't see a future with him in the country. So even though President Trump started out as a candidate, severely criticizing the Obama administration for their approach in Syria, both in terms of what he called its fecklessness and whatever else. His policy now is pretty much in line with what Obama has done before. Where there could potentially be a departure is, how does the Trump administration handle these kind of dueling approaches to negotiating the final outcome in Syria, whether through Geneva or with the Russians? That's an area in which they could potentially depart from the Obama administration. But as of today, it's not that different in terms of actual actions on the ground uh, and rhetorically not that much of a difference either, even though there was initially some. Okay, so I get why the U.S. is involved. But what about all the other countries in the mix, like Turkey and Iran and Saudi Arabia, or even Russia? In fact, come to think of it, maybe especially Russia. What's up with that? In terms of Russia, Russia obviously looks at Syria as their last toehold in the Middle East. Um, the Soviets had Syria as a client state for quite a long time. 
Vladimir Putin, again, sees the fall of the Soviet Union as the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. And so he sees reestablishing Russian influence in the Middle East as a key platform for his foreign policy. Russia's only naval base in the area is at Tartus in northwestern Syria. And so for that reason, the Russians have put and sold a lot of weapons to Bashar al-Assad. And when it looked like he was on the verge of falling a few years back, the Russians anteed up even more, sent planes, troops, etc., to the region to keep him in power. So where they are now is Putin feels like he's sitting pretty because ISIS is not only on the wane, but also the rebels seem to be on the wane in terms of being able to overthrow Assad. So not only do they feel like they've kept their client in place, but also the fact that they are trying to shepherd through these negotiations that again will have them as potentially a central player in the Middle East and the politics of the region. And Turkey? What's their deal? Why do they care so much about Syria? The way that Turkey fits in is that Turkey initially was kind of a supporter of the Assad regime in the sense that they put a lot of money into Aleppo. They have strong business interests there in northern Syria. But quite quickly, they became very soured on the Assad regime and the way he was handling the uprising, the response to his people. And so quickly, they became some of the strongest uh, states and individuals who said the Assad must go. And they started to actively support um, potentially some of the rebel groups. And then to the extent that they were doing anything on their border, um, they were actually housing over a million refugees and many others. Uh, where Turkey is today is a kind of interesting place. They became very disillusioned with the United States and the international community in terms of resolving this conflict. So they've kind of been looking out for number one. They've established a buffer zone inside of Syria where they've sent some of their troops into. They've been backing some of the Turkmen and some of these other ethnic minorities there, and they've been strongly intervening against the Kurds, both in their own country as well as across the border. And so where they are today is they can potentially be okay with Assad staying in power, even though they don't necessarily love it. What they're, what they're much more worried about is that either the Syrian Kurds or the Iraqi Kurds or others will get greater autonomy or independence and then be a base of support for the Kurdish population they have in the southeastern part of their country. So that is in many ways their main concern at the moment. As for Iran and Saudi Arabia, that's a bit more complicated. And it opens up this whole other can of worms about the problem of the growing number of civil wars that we've been seeing in recent years. Especially since the end of the Cold War, civil wars are far more common than interstate wars. Now, people say, hey, that's because states have nuclear weapons, and so the U.S. and the Russians aren't going to fight a war directly, and that's probably part of the answer. There's an argument in international relations called democratic peace theory, and it's the idea that two democracies are rarely going to go to war with one another, either because they look at their citizens, look at each other and say, oh, those people are like us, we don't want to fight them, and or because the people who are voting are also the ones who have to be fighting, and so they're less likely to have these types of conflicts with other democracies. But long in short, civil wars are much more common, and they're often driven by either A, fights over borders, because the borders of places like Africa and the Middle East oftentimes were externally drawn or not drawn based on the ethnic or national boundaries of the people who are living there. And so you see a lot of civil wars that are fought over that, trying to readjust borders. The other reason you see, I think, large numbers of civil wars is because even though we don't have the Cold War today between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, we certainly have varieties of Cold Wars. So one, for example, in the Middle East is kind of the Saudi-Iranian Cold War, where each state is fighting kind of for hegemony or for dominance in the broader region. And so they see the Middle East in some sense as a broad Othello board, where they're trying to flip each state kind of to their side, from white to black and vice versa. And that's in many ways what Syria should be seen as, is it's not just the Syrian people or many of the Syrian people against Assad and the, his supporters of the Syrian people. It's also the fact that Syria's long been in 
Iranian ally and proxy, uh, and the Saudis see it as such. So they've not surprisingly been some of the major supporters of the Syrian rebels against them. And so understanding civil wars and why they come about also has this international element. Now, the other things you need to think about with civil wars is how you resolve them. Um, when you have a civil war, what's really interesting about it is it's not just you know the heads of two states who are talking. It's often much more complex because you have the rebel groups and the state. And there's a big challenge there because the state sees its legitimacy as being able to have sovereignty and control over its whole territory. And yet these rebels are directly challenging that. So that's one problem. Another key problem is you have all these supporting states who to some extent have to come to the table if they're going to actually stop funding or supporting the conflict. And so that's in many ways entrees that can be used to discuss the Syrian civil war. So how is this war going to end? And is the end near or is the fighting just going to drag on and on for many more years to come? So I think the next thing that's going to happen in Syria is we're entering the phase where ISIS is mostly off the battlefield, which is certainly a positive. And to be honest, it's a positive, not just from the U.S. perspective, but almost every other actor's on the battlefield's perspective. Pretty much no one liked ISIS, even though at various times they potentially were okay with the fact that ISIS was fighting their enemies instead of them, but rarely were they ever, of course, supporting them. But that doesn't mean by any means that the fight is over. In fact, now we have ISIS mostly off the battlefield, but we still have the Kurds, we still have the Assad regime, we still have the rebel forces of varying stripes. We still have Hezbollah, we still have the Iranians, we still have the Russians, the United States, the Turks. There still are a tremendous number of players on the battlefield in Syria with conflicting goals and conflicting designs on what should happen for the future of the country. So although I think that we're in a different phase now, I don't think, unfortunately, that the conflict itself is about to come to an end, in part because, number one, we don't have one side just winning. When we talk about civil wars and actually them coming to an end, it's much more common that one side winning leads to to an end than some type of negotiated outcome. So that's number one. Number two is the fact that you have a lot of foreign support and foreign actors involved here. And if you think about the Lebanese civil war, which is the best comparison for Syria, that was a civil war that lasted for nearly 15 years, from 1975 to 1989-90. Um, and in many ways, it mirrors a lot of the Syrian civil war in the sense that just like in Lebanon, you have all these regional players who have their hand kind of in the cookie jar, so to speak, trying to gain the spoils or make sure their side does better or whatever else. They don't ante up enough to actually win the conflict, but they ante up enough to prevent their side from losing it. And that's one of the reasons that these wars go on and many more Syrians and other people die. So unfortunately, I don't think there's a light at the end of the tunnel in the near term in Syria. What I think ultimately can happen, and I won't put a time frame on it, is the various sides will recognize, okay, we have this, we can defend what we have now, but we can't get much more. And so ultimately, hopefully, there's some type of deal that recognizes that. And again, that's how the Lebanese Civil War ended. You didn't have any one side just fully triumphing. You had a power-sharing agreement that roughly mirrored kind of the forces on the battlefield with some adjustments over time. And I think ultimately, that's the outcome in Syria. But in the meantime, as long as the Assad regime or the Kurds or other factions feel like they can get more than maybe they currently have, unfortunately, I don't think the conflict's going to come to a close. Finally, how do you teach Syria? How do you bring coherence to a conflict this complicated? Professor Kraus put his teacher hat back on and offered a few closing thoughts on this for us too. 
So if I had one day to teach on the civil war and the crisis in Syria, uh, I would pick one angle. I wouldn't try to do everything. So I'd either pick the angle of civil war, what's a civil war, because more and more these days, we don't really have too many interstate wars between states. Most conflicts are internal. And so I'd help them to understand, you know, what exactly is a civil war? Why do they happen? Maybe make some connections to the American Civil War, which is probably the one that they know the best, but explain why this is in many ways the challenge of our day because of fights over political control or borders or whatever else. Also that about 90% of terrorist attacks come from civil wars, so I would focus on that angle. Or I would focus on the humanitarian crisis angle. You know, what does it mean to be a refugee? Why does someone become a refugee? What are the various policies of surrounding states and the United States regarding handling refugees? The U.S. took in, I think, about 16,000 Syrian refugees last year, but then President Trump came to office and said, we're not taking anymore. And so that's a key, you know, political debate inside of our country about how many refugees to take. If you take refugees, do you give them citizenship or you just keep them for a while and then ship them back? Um, these are all important issues that I think high schoolers can and should start to understand and have a stance on, in part because they'll probably see some refugees in their community, depending on where they are. And Syria is a great jumping off point for that, unfortunately, because it has been such a humanitarian tragedy that the Syrian refugee issue is going to be one that's going to last for you know years, if not decades, regardless of the outcome of the conflict. So I would pick one of those type of entrees into the conflict, focus on it, link it to some broader issues in the class, and that's how I teach it. Syria is not a problem that can or will be solved quickly, nor is it a problem that can be fully understood in the time we've just spent together. To be honest, we've really just scratched the surface. But I hope that the last 25 minutes or so has given you a leg up in understanding some of the broader contours and deeper complexities of the conflict, as well as some of the stakes for all those involved. Because of the sheer magnitude of the humanitarian crisis this conflict has created, the war in Syria is essential learning for all students, everywhere. It's critical that they have a basic understanding of what's going on there and that they spend some time thinking about the larger questions the conflict raises for all of us, including U.S. foreign policy in the region, but also what to do about the rise in the number of civil wars more broadly, and of course, how to assist the millions of people who've been displaced because of them. Thanks for joining us, and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East. To learn more about today's episode, our sponsors, and strategies for teaching about the war in Syria, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. <laughs>